Welcome back to another episode of Become a Calm Mama. I'm your host, I'm Darlene Childress, and I'm a life and parenting coach. And today on the podcast, I love this because we're going to talk about ADHD. And I know you're already like, wait, we're going to talk about ADHD. This is so exciting. And I'm just, I'm not the one going to talk about it. I'm going to let you learn from Lainey Donnell. Eleni's here. She is an educational therapist, a college counselor, and the co-founder of Lila Learning, which she's going to tell us about. And so I've invited Lainey on the podcast to share her expertise about ADHD and just cognitive function, executive function, things like that. So welcome, Lainey, to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here and talk about one of my favorite subjects. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you introduce yourself? Give us a little background of like, you know, what what you what how you got into this. Like, why do you why sure. do you work as an ed therapist? Yeah. Um. So I was diagnosed actually in second grade with dyslexia and auditory and visual processing issues and a whole bevy of other things. Um. But then they didn't realize that I had ADHD until I was in tenth grade. Uh. And so even though I got a lot of help and support, um, things just kind of, I kept tripping over myself. I always say, you know, uh, we tend to get in the way of ourselves. So we figured that out or a, uh, a neuropsychologist figured that out kind of armed with that information. I was able to understand myself a little bit better. Um, I did go on medication, which was game changing for me. It is not game changing for everyone, but it can be for some was just better able to understand my executive function difficulties. And then from then on uh, college, uh, back and forth, whether I become a psychologist or what I'm going to do. And then I kind of fell into teaching, absolutely fell in love with the classroom uh, and working one-on-one, -on -one. got my master's in special education, uh, got my uh, education specialist teaching credential, uh, and then eventually started working in the evenings as an educational therapist, kind of stuck with that after I had children and left the classroom. I've been doing that ever since. So mm -hmm. uh, this is a very personal topic for me. It's a professional topic for me. And both of my children have ADHD. And so um, it's uh, on every level. I am surrounded by it day and night. Uh, there is no escaping this. Yeah. I just felt so encouraged by your story and how I think when we're raising kids and they have neurodivergence, like you just said, you know, you dyslexia and visual processing and then later ADHD, it's so easy as a parent to think, oh my God, how are they ever going to be successful? And then you come oh, yeah. on the podcast and your own personal story and you're like, well, I'm, I have a master's in this and I do this and I obviously went to college, graduated from college, you know, learned to read. There's so much hope, I think, just for anyone who has right now is raising a kid and feels discouraged. It's like, oh, no, Lainey, right. a success story. And there are so <laughs> many examples of that. That's right. encouraging just by itself. There are. There are so many success stories. And I just think it's a matter of approach and attitude and a willingness to embrace uh, because it was very much something that was talked about in my family. It was just part of the conversation. And 
Uh, I was taught early on about how to advocate for myself, how to speak up. I do think there was a piece of it in my personality that I was never kind of a quiet person. However, our early self-esteem, we go from hopefully a loving home and then we go to school and our self-esteem is very much wrapped up in what happens in the school arena, whether it's social or academic, and we get our stars and our stickers and our checks and our check pluses. Um, and when those things uh, aren't happening, it uh, starts to tear away at your self-esteem. And you very clearly start to see the divide between not really the haves and the have nots, but the uh, able and the unable, um, especially with reading. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I was a otherwise fairly happy kid, and then I wasn't. And so we see that with students all the time. Um, but if we've got low self-esteem and unhappiness, once that emotional layer kind of comes over a student, learning stops happening. It's so critical to kind of uh, understand where that self-esteem piece uh, fits in. I feel like I might have just gotten off topic. <laughs> ah, that's okay. No, it's good. I always say, you know, that we have these developmental stages that we go through. And when you're two to five, two to six, the developmental question is, am I good or am I bad? And we want the mm, kid, mm -hmm. they think of it as very um, binary like that, black and white, because they're little. Yes, yes. And we want them to answer I am good, right? Like at my core, right. I'm a good kid. And that's yeah. why it's so important how we parent. And then from six to 12, the question that they're answering is, am I capable? Mm -hmm. And I think what you're talking about, it really addresses that is like, if the answer, if they come up with the answer of no, I'm not capable, mm -hmm. that will create that longer term struggle in academics and struggle in just trying new things and uh, sticking to something, all of that. Yeah. yeah. And I think part of what you were saying, am I good or am I bad in those early years, when we're in school in the traditional setting, um, that's typically based on behavior, how they feel if they're good or bad. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at ADHD, ADHD is the, the umbrella term. That is the diagnostic term now. There's no ADHD and ADD. Mm -hmm. The umbrella term is ADHD. And it's a... It's an issue with the, you know, self-regulation, working memory, sensory integration, self-management part of the brain, okay? Mm. And so that's kind of the umbrella of ADHD. And then we've got three subtypes to, that can be diagnosed. We've got inattentive, hyperactive, and combined type. Now, um, inattentive is very misleading. Uh, because it's not an inattention. It is not that these students can't pay attention. It's actually an over-attention to too many things, too much stimuli at a given time. So take the classroom, for instance. We've got a student who's sitting there with, you know, anywhere from 18 to 30 other kids all around them. And so there's all that stimuli. There's stuff on the walls. They're thinking about after school, the air conditioning just kicked off. Um, maybe someone is walking outside and their shoes are kind of clicking. Someone is playing with a pencil. 
oh, wait, and the teacher's talking and doing something. And, oh, the seat is a little uncomfortable. And I can tell ever so slightly that one of the legs of my chair is a little shorter than the other so I can wiggle. And so it's all equal stimuli all at one time. And the inability to prioritize your attention, to be able to go, oh, wait a minute, the teacher's talking. I should be focused there. So that brain is unable to kind of click in and go, oh, I should just pay attention to the teacher. So it's not inattention. It's kind of over attention or an inability to kind of manage your attention. So that's inattentive, then hyperactive and impulsive, right? It's exactly what it sounds like. So unable to regulate your uh, reactions, your behavior. Uh, they, I remember years ago, instead of ready, aim, fire, it was fire, ready, aim. Uh, and so you just don't think before you act. You don't think about the consequences. It's not that you don't comprehend consequences. It's that they don't occur to you before you actually take that action. Mm -hmm. um, and so going back to what we were saying, the kids who are a behavior issue get the sense that they're bad early on yep. because those yep. are the students who are most obvious. They are the most yep. obvious students who are struggling. The inattentive students fit quietly. Those are the ones who are drifting off, thinking about whatever it is that is way more interesting and that is providing some dopamine to them than what is going on in the classroom. And so that sense of good and bad early on in relation to behavior happens um, very quickly for those kids who have combined and hyperactive or impulsivity issues. Yes. Um, the inattentive students, often it gets very internalized because, um, because of just that. It's just happening inside. And so it's a very hidden disability. Mm, yeah. My yeah. son, yeah. Lincoln, was diagnosed ADHD at six, primarily... Mm -hmm. I got him, you know, resources and like, you know, sought out trying to figure out what was going on is because he was getting in trouble so much in school. And I didn't, yeah. I didn't understand what was happening, but also I really was so aware that he needed to believe that he was like, like a good boy. I never use that language at all in parenting, but that's how they think of themselves. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And I was yeah. concerned that, you know, being have a red card every day. Like, you know, the teachers will have your start on yep. green and then you have a yellow card and then you red card and you have to turn your card. All of those, I know. Um, those way, ways that teachers manage their classroom work for a lot. Well, I don't know if they're healthy at all, but you know, they work for some kids and doesn't have a long term yep. effect, but on a kid right. that's trying to decide or figure out like, my good boy, my good girl, what's going on? They're in trouble all the time. Right. That's not good long-term. Right. Yeah. No. I do feel that, mm, I was going to say, I think Lincoln has grown out of his hype, his combined type, but then now I'm thinking about well, how I it also, it's probably still the impulsive. Oh, yes, yeah, like purchasing. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's the dopamine seeking. We mm. lack dopamine. And the only times that... So this is the, the beauty and the evil of this is that the only time when you uh, attention is a non-issue, impulsivity, maybe a bit of an issue, but not hyperactivity. Um, if the situation is such high interest 
that it is no problem to pay attention because your body is giving you so much of the chemicals that you need to feel good and excited. So for some students, those are Legos. So parents always come to me and they're like, well, he can sit and do Legos for three hours, but then it's time to do homework and he can't sit still. Or um, Thomas Brown talks about um, uh, the student he had who was a hockey player, one of the best goalkeepers uh, of all time and had the worst case of ADHD he, he had seen in his career um, as of you know yet. Um, and so a goalkeeper, he it, that's all he wanted to do. And so it was absolutely no problem. Um, uh, or, you know, my nephew is an incredible reader, but we used to literally have to pull the book out of his hands to get him to engage, right? And so it just kind of depends on what that high interest activity is. And then the other mm -hmm. instance where attention is not an issue for kids with ADHD is that if the... Um, if the consequence is so negative that it wants to be avoided. So that's why we have our last minute Larry's. So at nine o'clock, the night before something is due for our students, if there's no other learning disability, they're gonna kick into gear and they are gonna write some kick butt essay and get it done and maybe get it turned in the next day. I don't know, once they've gotten that dopamine kick, they're all of a sudden like, there's a huge letdown and they're like, oh, I don't know, I wrote it. I don't know if I turned it in, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, but those are the two instances where attention isn't a problem. And for a mom or a parent uh, or a caregiver, it's confusing because they're like, I see that they can do it. They just aren't doing it. So it looks like a disorder of choice. It looks mm -hmm. like a disorder of choice or motivation. And I, I don't really blame, you know, teachers or parents um, when they say like, he's just so lazy or he's so unmotivated. Well, I really subscribe to Rick Lavoie, who is amazing, and I would encourage anyone to look him up. But there really is a myth of laziness. Like it's it's no, I my partner Liz and I always say when we're presenting to teachers and parents, um, we're we always say that you know no kid and unless there is a like diagnosable. Uh, emo ED, emotional disturbance, something behavior-based, no kid is um, wanting to fail their teachers or their parents or wanting to not meet the expectation that is being presented to them, right? If they are not meeting those expectations, um, not getting the sticker or whatever it is, um, then something is in their way. It is not their motivation to disappoint. It is their motivation to please and do well. And so there's another piece of the puzzle missing when they are not doing well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I just keep thinking of my own son and how, how much it has helped our relationship, understanding how his brain works, because right. it is really easy to give, you know, L Lincoln is lazy, you know, Lincoln is, you know, kind of these labels that then erode his concept. If I say you're lazy, yeah. then he's going to hold that as an identity. And I would rather, right. I always say like procrastination is your friend, bud. instead of getting angry with him, I'm like, yeah, it creates urgency for you. And then that lights your fire. Right. I right. wouldn't, I wouldn't choose to be that way because it would be too right. stressful to me, but I'm right. motivated differently. But I was going to say about the, inattention and the high interest 
attention. I sometimes call it hyper, hyper, hyper attention, like we have hyperactive yes. and hyper attention. And I oh, yeah. want- hyper focus is a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's so cool to no, go ahead. Finish what you're saying. Yeah. To watch him be able to like, you know, play the guitar for three hours or when he was little play Legos for hours at a time or build the most incredible Hot Wheels contraption as a little kid or, you know, whatever yeah. it was that he was interested in, he would stay in it for a long time. And it oh, was yeah, really that amazing. hyper attention is I mean, I have a student who he's in sixth grade and his ability to um, take a deep dive and retain information about any piece of history related to wars in the world, it's beyond me. And it's, it's not, it's so interesting because at one point his mom was like, is he autistic? Is this like a savant tendency? And I'm like, no, 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 no. This is not who he is. This is his hyper focus. And that is the amazing thing about this ADHD brain is that it just works differently. It's not any better. It's not any worse. It feels worse because of the structure in which it has to function in K through 12, mm-hmm. right? And the classroom environment, you know, teachers, what what parents need to know and I, I love teachers. I loved being a classroom teacher. I, I continue to maybe, uh, not maybe, but to have faith in teachers. What you have to understand is that when teachers go get their credential, okay, um, they get one semester, one class in special education in the state of California, okay? It doesn't vary by very much in other states. And that class covers everything that falls under special education, which is a huge, huge area. And then they're supposed to go into these classrooms and we have this mandate federally that we're supposed to have inclusion, which is a beautiful concept of including all students in all classrooms. And the the theory behind it is to, um, is to, look at neurodiversity, respect brain differences, strengths, challenges, yet our teachers aren't really prepared to go in there and do that. And so we haven't given them the support. But meanwhile, parents are depending on our educators and our teachers to give them the heads up and say, here's what's going on. But teachers don't always know that. They don't know always what they're looking at. You'd be so surprised. Um, And one of my absolute favorite things to do is to get into pre-service programs with teachers doing um, simulations and talking about what learning disabilities look like in the classroom, but also getting into the schools uh, Mm -hmm. and working with uh, teachers so that they can understand what it looks like within the classroom. Because it's it's also, I think for parents, what they need to understand is also it's, it's a whole personality type. It's not just an attention issue. This also includes, you know, immense emotionality, a very high sensitivity. You know, if your kid is, you know, you just said to them, I need you to go clean your, your room. And they're like, why are you yelling at me? Right. Mm-hmm. That highly, highly sensitive kid. Um, speaking of room, chances are they take their shoes off and that's where those shoes are going to stay for weeks on end, right? And you go and you tell them, please go clean up your room. And they go in there and they clean it up. And then you go into their room and go, wait, 
you just said you cleaned your room and it looks like absolutely nothing has happened. They literally don't see what you are seeing. They, it, 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 they don't see the shoes that are in the middle of the floor or the pile of sand that fell out of their shoes. It's just not part of what they are processing. It's not a vision thing. It's just that they're not seeing it. But it it really is so much bigger. You know, it's that time management piece. It's that peer interaction. It's that ability to give and take in a conversation. It's that, um, you know, a lot of people don't know about this thing called working memory. And working memory is a piece of um, your what's called executive function. And you can think about executive function. Um, Liz and I always say it's like a, it's like the conductor of an orchestra in your brain. And it's happening right here in your frontal lobe, okay? And there's this little conductor in your brain who is basically... Um, Oh, telling you, okay, it's time to time manage. Okay, stop time managing. It's time to actually get started with this task. Let's move on from this task and let's go to the next task. And so there's this little conductor telling you what to do and, oh, hold this really quiet right here. Let's keep the violins at this level so that we can bring in the percussion. That is part of the working memory. It's like, holding on to information while you're manipulating it and doing something else. So for example, um, let's say I'll come back to the peer interaction piece, but just so I can explain what this working memory is. So let's think about um, learning order of operations. Okay. If we learn order of operations in math, we've got to also have some math fluency, right? We've got to know our multiplication table. We've got to remember how to add and subtract and carry and do all of those things. Right. And then you've got to learn is order operations. That's PEMDAS, right? <laughs> <laughs> Math is not my strong suit, but um, you've got to hold on to all of that background knowledge while doing the order of operations. When you have poor working memory and you can't hold on to those math facts and that fluency of maybe your multiplication table, the order of operations isn't actually going to happen. Okay. It's the same thing with algebra. Think about all the steps that go into algebra. There's so many little pieces of that. And if there's one little cog that is a little off, then they can't do that. But if you put a multiplication chart in front of them and you help their working memory a little bit, oh, all of a sudden it's no problem to do an algebra problem. It's the same thing with writing an essay. When you think about writing a paragraph or a three paragraph essay, you're thinking about sentence structure. You're thinking about the actual topic. You're thinking about the organization of the information, transition words, spelling, punctuation, right? Your audience. Am I doing first person? Do I have to do third person, right? There's so many things that you have to hold on to while actually performing that task. So if we go back and we think about working memory, and then we go back to thinking about peer interaction, you've got to remember, well, right now, Darlene, you and I are talking, and I've got to remember, okay, this is my professional hat right now. So I need to be speaking to you 
professionally, right? And I also need to, you know, remember all the things that I know about ADHD <laughs> while also holding on to the question that I'm actually trying to answer at the same time. And so I have to hold on to all of those things while I'm performing this task. Well, a nine-year-old boy who just wants to get out what they want to say and the, uh, you know, uh, and remember that there's some social cues coming at them if they're struggling with, you know, not knowing the social cues, but attending to those social cues while they're trying to have a give and take in a conversation, that can create quite a problem because kids want to be heard, right? And if you've got a kid who's doing nothing but interrupting and touching and grabbing and trying to insert themselves, well, you're going to create quite a problem for yourself, right? Yeah. So that peer interaction becomes um, a real issue. And so that's just a piece of that kind of bigger personality type that comes with the diagnosis of ADHD um, that often gets overlooked. Um, and, you know, we just think of it as attention or a school mm -hmm. disorder, but this is a, a lifelong thing, let me mm -hmm. tell you. <laughs> yeah. So what would you say are the like, I don't know. I don't have a number, but you know, the five things that kind of are telltale signs or hallmarks of ADHD. So I, that might be a too complicated of a question, but you had said in the beginning, you know, there was like the, you know, the different impulse control, self-regulation, you know, these kind of, you said them really fast. And I thought that was really helpful to, for a parent who's listening and they're, they either have an ADHD kid and they're like wanting to be like, yes, yeah, no, that, that's what we saw. That's what we saw. And they were really yeah. solidifying their own experience. Um, or yeah. a parent who's like, I don't know. I have clients all the time who are like, we're not sure if we should have them diagnosed or her diagnosed. We're, we're exploring that. It's kind of in the language yeah. right now, especially for girls and, and adult women. And yeah. I, I think as a parent, sometimes we don't even know what we don't know. And so what oh, would yeah, you say yeah. are the things that that parents should be looking out for or, you know, screening for just a few of them? I think um, I think at the the middle and high school level, I would say one of the biggest things is that they live in the gap between intention and follow through. Mm. So they have all the best intentions of, OK, I'm I. I'm going to get all my homework done or, okay, I'm, I'm going to, yeah, mom, I'm going to clean my room, you know, and then it doesn't happen. Mm. And then everything, you know, where it was, you know, it was said that it's going to happen and then nothing happens. There's no actual follow through. So living in this gap between intention and follow through. Yeah. I've definitely um, seen that. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. But it not so much like you're saying like middle school and high school more, um, less in elementary school, because I think we kind of manage it differently when they're we younger. are their executive function. Mm -hmm. We are, we act as their executive function when they're really little. There's this, you know, this sense in schools that like, once they get to middle and high school, you hear it from teachers all the time, like, okay, they, they've got to do it now. They've got to practice. And my response to that is you've got to teach it. So mm -hmm. then they can do it we can't just all of a sudden be hands off. And, and I don't think that, you know, doing it for them constantly, but I remember um, 
in my master's program or it was in master's or credential. I don't remember, but it was, we were always taught that um, I do, we do, you do. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so as a teacher, I would do it, you know, model it, and then we would do it together. And then eventually the theory is you would do it on your own. Mm-hmm. And so I think what you have to remember with ADHD is that with executive function, with that little conductor who's living up here in your frontal lobe, on average, on average, your executive function in the ADHD brain is delayed at, at like on average three years. So when we get to seventh grade or sixth grade, you've got to remove three years from that. Okay. Maybe two, depending on who the individual is. Um, and remember like we can't, uh, in, in psychology, they called shooting, shooting yourself. They should be able to just look at their assignment planner. They wrote it down. They should be able to, we can't do the should thing. Let's actually meet our kids where they are and then help them along to where they can be. Um, and so I think that, you know, you're right in elementary school, we do a very good job at being their executive function. Um, but I think that when we're hands off and it's not happening, that's Mm -hmm. an additional telltale sign, right. That they're not writing down their homework that, you know, all of a sudden, um, the backpack, the backpack is a huge telltale sign. Are there, um, are all their wrappers mushed at the bottom of their backpack in elementary school? Are they, um, you know, is everything just getting piled in there? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that is a, a, a big thing and a, a commonality that I see quite, um, quite often. Um, I think also a piece of ADHD that often gets overlooked is the uh, sensory piece that not a, a, alone, um, a sensory integration issue alone is not a single sign of ADHD. However, when you couple it with, my mom always used to say that she could have done surgery on me while I was watching TV. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this like full buy-in and she could talk to me right here, you know, right in my ear. And, you know, I, I wouldn't hear anything she said, but if you, so if you couple that with the messy room and the inability to follow through. And then you added, oftentimes you have a sensory issue. So sensory integration is kind of, I mean, it's what it sounds like. So typically with the ADHD person, their senses are heightened. So either they're very loud or maybe they're quiet. Um, maybe sounds are too loud or too quiet. I don't want to belabor it, but I just think for moms who are watching their kids, I hear it all the time. Like they don't know what's normal. So you have like three, Mm. four, five-year-old and they're all, you know, bumping into each other and, and, you know, big feel temper tantrums and all of these things. But I found like, with Lincoln, particularly, it all just seemed a little heightened, a little outside of mm-hmm. norm. His his mm-hmm. temper tantrums were more extreme oh. and lasted yes. longer. Uh, he had more instances of hands on others. He would be hands on others m- more aggressively than maybe the other kids. It's like he didn't have any right. breaks in his like no, you know, yeah, breaks like not b r e a k but breaks like for a car, like car breaks. Yeah. My son who is absolutely, his brain is incredible. Like I 
I've never seen a brain like this. Um, but he has a lot with his ADHD and, um, he is turned on in the morning and he is not able to turn off until night. I do believe kind of this mom gut. And if there's a question you're feeling like kind of different, um, I believe in diagnosis, like, oh, I'm not stupid. I have a map disability. That's thing. Like I knew I was trying so hard, but it just wasn't clicking. And then they find out that there's actually something on. It's not their fault. And so to take that off of them, it's such a gift and to make it part of the conversation and not, and the conversation isn't, I have ADHD, so I can't blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, we're not excusing that. We're not, you don't have to pay attention or you don't have to get your work. It's, I have ADHD, so we've got to figure out a different way to accomplish this task. So it's just going to look different. It's not a reason not to, it's just figure out a different way. The path is going to be different. But I encourage parents to get answers and Yes, pediatricians are a good first stop, and I adore my pediatrician, but I also think that we go to the experts in the area. So seeing someone, you know, for a neuropsych evaluation or seeing a child psychiatrist or a developmental pediatrician who specializes in ADHD, um, I think those are some of the better outlets to go to. If you want the diagnosis, then you can you know, have conversations about medication or educational therapy. Strictly speaking, research in science-based peer-reviewed, you know, journals. What we know right now, best outcomes we have right now are a combination of medication with some cognitive behavioral therapy, educational therapy, behavioral therapy, the two together. Just taking a pill, it's a pill, not a skill, just taking the pill is one step is not going to create the skill set that you need. So I encourage that like approach parents come to me and they say, well, what about diet? And what about, about?" and I'm like, yeah, do it all. If I do this, then all of a sudden it's a fix. There's no fix. There's nothing broken. We need to get away from this idea that like, there's something to fix. There isn't anything to fix. All right. So let me just recap. You said if you are thinking that your child has some sort of signs, maybe these hallmarks of impulse control, dysregulation, skill gaps, like what you've described, messy backpack or hyper-focus at times, and then inattention at other times, all of those things, that your first stop maybe is your pediatrician. And and. Then we want to move into a what you you know you said it fast so I want to really slow it down for the listener neuropsych evaluation that's something that I think people don't know to ask for or that they that's what you're seeking when you want to get not want to get a diagnosis but want to get clarity on what's going on and you do that through a child psychologist or child psychiatrist yeah developmental pediatricians won't do a neuropsych um, but they are usually just have a larger depth of knowledge um, because they typically specialize in those issues. I wanted to just say a quick note about the neuropsych 
just kind of differentiate for a second between the, a neuropsych evaluation and a psychoed evaluation that the schools provide, because there's a lot of confusion for parents. You know, well, my son got tested at school. Um, the testing that the school does is not diagnostic, is not a diagnostic tool. It's purely to um, assess how they are accessing curriculum and to assess what the school needs to do to help them access the curriculum. Where a neuropsych evaluation is an independent evaluation and it is diagnostic with diagnosis codes, et cetera. That's what we did with Lincoln mm -hmm. at, at um, he was about six and it was pretty comprehensive, comprehensive and it wasn't covered by our insurance or maybe it was, but we had to find nope. somebody and it was, it's unfortunate. It's, it can be cost prohibitive uh, and also hard to find people who do these. And so I would just encourage parents to like keep working at it because like you said, Lainey, that the diagnoses will help inform what you need to be mm -hmm. teaching, what skills you need to be developing and also the medication conversation. Um, yeah. And whether that's yeah. like the right fit and, and that kind of thing. I always say to my my parents, I'm not a drug pusher by any means, um, but we do know what the science says. And the science also says the earlier a pharmacological intervention is put in place with kids with ADHD, the less likely they will engage in risky drug-related behaviors later on. Mm -hmm. um, really important statistic because it's... Um, it's something that parents come to me a lot with, especially families that have addiction um, within their family history. Um, we actually know that if we intervene earlier, um, we have better outcomes with that. So mm -hmm. I thought I would just add that in there because I know that's a fear for a lot of families. Well, it's like parents feel afraid of the medication in the first place, and then they're afraid of what if mm -hmm. they don't do it. And it's it's a difficult balance. It's a difficult conversation, attention with, you know, it's tense within us. And, and oh, so yeah. that's why it's really helpful to have the data and to then have somebody, you know, a professional who you're having conversations with. What are some interventions that you see really being effective and how do you help support your kids once they are diagnosed and you're like, okay, so this is our situation. We're figuring out meds. Da, 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 da. How can families support their kids in the home? What are some things that you, you kind of say like basic things with ADHD, you should do these three or these five things, whatever. Right. So I'm going to give them, I'm also going to preface it with these don't necessarily work for me in my home because <laughs> there is this pushback by my children because of the nature of what I do, mm -hmm. um, that they don't necessarily want to listen to me. So I'm going to tell you some things that work for my families, but they don't always work for me. And I just have to be honest about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not necessary, but we do appreciate your honesty. It's funny yeah. because I'm a parenting coach and you would you know, it's like, oh, do your do you never yell at your children, right? Like, because I teach parents how to be calm. Right. I'm like, oh no, sometimes I do, and I know how to repair that. I know why I'm yelling. I know how to get out of the spiral, and I know how yeah. to talk about it. So it's yeah. not none of the strategies are like surefire, perfect. 
it just helps to have some tools in our toolbox. Yes. Yes. And so I think that's what everyone. I think that one of the key things that you can do early on, I remember with my daughter, um, when a, in kindergarten, I remember she had to do uh, something with a, I think it was like a leprechaun trap or something. And so we, early on, we, um, used to create little calendars and Mm -hmm. we would sit down and we, we would write the due date on the date that it was due. And so working backwards and teaching them very early on, um, Mm -hmm. about how to what's called backwards plan from a due date to, um, to actually get to that due date. Um, so I think including that them in that planning process is really important, helping them to, um, create a workspace that feels uh, calm and clear and large, uh, a large workspace. The ADHD brain thrives on structure and has a complete inability to create it. Uh, They (laughs) cannot create their, yet their own structure. They don't necessarily, uh, they for sure don't know where to begin. Helping them to uh, prioritize, figure out, okay, well, get this done. I'll be back in 30 minutes. And then we can figure out what the next thing is. Mm -hmm. Um, And kind of scaffolding that and and modeling. For my middle and high schoolers, we use a paper planner uh, because the research still tells us that analog or writing is still the best for our brains. Though schools now provide these online platforms with due dates, which is so lovely, and don't get me wrong, I'm very, very grateful for it. Um, They're just that. They're due dates. It's a to-do list. It is not a plan. So helping them to learn how to plan out their day, while also understanding the bigger picture of have an orthodontist appointment on Tuesday. And I also have volleyball for two hours. So the ortho and volleyball. So Tuesday night is a terrible night for me to get work done. So I better plan for Monday and Wednesday, right? So really mapping out when things are going to happen. You will for sure have some resistance. Ultimately, I think that students will be incredibly grateful for that. My business partner and I, after years and years of working with a variety of different planners, uh, we developed one, the Lila Plan. It's now sold on our website, and it's a tool that incorporates both, you know, morning activities, after school activities, tools to kind of help you think about is on Friday. What do I need to do on Thursday and Wednesday and Tuesday? And it comes with an instructional video. So you're not just like handed a planner and, you know, go for it. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a binder that is a whole system for middle and high schoolers. Elementary schools, again, typically are the executive function for these kids. Do I wish it was different? Yes. I wish that starting in second grade, we were teaching these skills explicitly. So, and then I think, you know, reaching out for help, finding an educational therapist who is able to help with the school-based skills. You know, educational therapy, it's kind of like physical therapy for skills in school. Physical therapy, you go to build up a muscle or, you know, something was broken and you need to relearn how to, you know, use your appropriately. 
Well, in educational therapy, we focus on how do we break down the society? Okay, we have to study. How do we study? And how do we study in a way that's good for my learning style, right? How do I, I'm really a bodily aware and kinesthetic. How can I turn my studying into movement, things like that? And so those skills that you know, curriculum-based instruction just doesn't seem to be able to make time for, it'll be helpful. Yeah. Okay. This is all so good. Calendaring out big projects, creating a large workspace that is really, you know, conducive to learning to plan, you know, sitting there, no distractions, Um, structuring, you know, having structure, using a planner, and then getting some support. I love all these. They're very focused on school. So, Maybe I'll just share on another episode of what I've done in my family. I I noticed that with my with my son that like what you're saying, like they can't create structure but thrive from it. How important it was that I had a pretty solid routine, like what was done in the morning, very, oh, yes. very simple, bare necessity, the five things before we go to school. And then the rhythm of the afternoon was really simple, really not a lot of toys, not a lot of clothes, not a lot of shoes. Um, Mm -hmm. a lot of rhythms around when we would do things. And in retrospect, I am thinking like, oh, I really did create all of that just to manage for myself, but probably because of Lincoln, I, it just, he needed Mm -hmm. this, this drum, like boom, boom, boom in the Mm -hmm. background Mm -hmm. so that he could kind of know where he was in space and time and what was coming next. But the emotional coaching things that I've teach, around self-regulation and processing emotion, not going against someone else's body. It also all kind of stemmed from having this impulsive kid. Uh, so I've, mm-hmm. it's interesting to me in like now he's a grown up, but realizing a lot of the things that I needed to figure out in parenting were probably because I was mm-hmm. raised an ADHD kid. <laughs> There's no doubt ADHD is one of the most heritable traits mm-hmm. um, or uh, diagnosis which means that chances are very high that mom or dad, possibly uncle, also has ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an interesting thing. It is very much a spectrum disorder. It looks very different in different kids and adults. As a mom with ADHD, parenting children with ADHD, <laughs> I think it, it could be a whole other topic. Yeah. Um, because it's, it's an incredibly challenging thing, you know, um, when you have to recognize the things that you struggled with in your children, it brings up a whole other level of difficulty. Yeah. Um, and, and when you're the mom guilt. <laughs> and you listen to these podcast episodes and the, the teacher like myself is like, create routines, create structure. And you're like, I don't know how. And I find that, right. You know, I must teach this way for a reason, like, okay, here's step one. We're going to start here. We're going to, this is like Mm -hmm. a skeleton outline of how bedtime should go or a skeleton outline of how mornings, you know, your morning routine. Cause I do think a lot of us, even without ADHD aren't, it's Mm -hmm. so overwhelming to parent kids and then your kids are wild. And it's like, what's the most important thing? What am I supposed to be focusing on right now? Like kids make us feel like we have ADHD, but then if you actually have it, it's even more complicated. Yes, yes, yes. A hundred percent. Yes. <laughs> Good. Well, I so appreciate you coming on and helping us understand a little bit about what ADHD looks like in our kids and 
those signs, those things to be looking out for. I think anyone listening is like, oh yeah, I saw, oh yeah, that's, uh-huh, I've seen that. Okay, okay. That now putting the pieces together, maybe we get some support helping us figure out how to start with that and then what to do, mm-hmm. how to create more school success, how to protect their self-concept and their self-esteem as they develop. Yeah. yeah. So important. Um, yeah. And your planner sounds amazing. So we'll definitely, some of you have kids, you know, you have ADHD kids and you have a middle school and high school and you're like, wait, what'd you say about that planner? Do I need that? You do. So, you know, we'll put the website in the show notes, but go ahead and share with us where can people find out about you and the planner? www.lilalearning.com. And that's where you can find our planner, our binder. And also we do student workshops, parent and workshops, teaching teachers, we go in schools. Uh, And then my personal website is edtherapy.com. And that's where you can find out about me and my ed therapy and college counseling practice. And if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer them. But yeah, I'm here to answer questions or help or get you in the right direction. And I'm really glad I got to talk to you today. Thank you. Yeah. Just in case it wasn't clear, it's edtherapist.com and lilalearning.com. So be sure to go and find all of Lainey's resources. And even going on a website kind of gives a parent guidance of like, oh, this is what I should be looking for. These are the types of supports I need. This is what it looks mm-hmm. like. I think it can be really helpful, even if you're, you know, you're fully booked, but having a parent just kind of see, oh, this is what ed therapists do. I need that. And then start to seek out resources. I love it. Yeah. And there's a database uh, called um, AET Online Association of Educational Therapists. Um, And you can search for educational therapists across the United States. Search your zip code and who's there and what they're doing. So that's a really good resource too. So good. Yeah. Well, we'll, I'll have you on again because I think it would be great to talk about what it's like having ADHD and then just parenting in general, (laughs) and then particularly parenting kids with ADHD. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sure everyone is going to love this episode and um, yeah, please check the show notes, go to Lainey's website and um, obviously, uh, or always, if you want some parenting support, you can reach out to me at calmamacoaching.com. So yeah, we're, we're here. Both of us are here as a resource to you. So wishing you a great week and thank you so much to Lainey. You're welcome. Thank you.